Welcome to Back to Health, your source for the latest in health, wellness, and medical care. Keeping you informed so you can make informed healthcare choices for yourself and your whole family. Back to Health features conversations about trending health topics and medical breakthroughs from our team of world-renowned physicians at Weill Cornell Medicine. I'm Melanie Cole, and today we're discussing recovery from the ICU and the road ahead for patients through the post-ICU recovery clinic at Weill Cornell Medical Center. Joining me is Dr. Lindsay Leaf. She's the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit and the director of the post-ICU recovery clinic. She's also an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine. Dr. Leaf, thank you so much for being with us today. Start by telling us what is post-intensive care syndrome. So post-intensive care syndrome, which is abbreviated as PICS, is really a constellation of symptoms that can happen after a patient endures an ICU stay. So those symptoms can be cognitive, emotional, or physical symptoms. And now also we include social isolation and financial hardship as part of this syndrome. And all of those things are considered part of this syndrome. Well, thank you so much for telling us what that is. So who is affected? Tell us a little bit about what you've seen as far as people that are in recovery and that are post-intensive care. What have you seen? Who is most affected? Well, we can't predict exactly who will suffer from post-intensive care syndrome, but we know certain groups are at higher risk. And those people include those who were on mechanical ventilation, so on a ventilator for several days, those who required sedation while in the intensive care unit, those who experienced delirium or episodes of confusion while they were critically ill, and those who had syndromes like septic shock or ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, all of those patients are at higher risk of suffering from post-intensive care syndrome. Patients who we think come to the ICU for a very short stay, maybe overnight, after a procedure perhaps, are at much lower risk of developing these symptoms. Well, then tell us about your holistic approach to care after the ICU. In addition to the thorough medical exam, how do you screen for PICS? What kinds of tests do you conduct? Right. So we consider a post-intensive care visit sort of, on one hand, like a post-op visit. So someone has a major surgery. Of course, they're going to check in with the surgeon a month later, make sure everything's going well, they're getting back to their life. And we draw analogy to that. So as opposed to going to just see the cardiologist or the ophthalmologist or someone who focuses on one particular organ or part of the body, when we see a patient in post-ICU clinic, we start with a lot of open-ended questions. And in addition, we will tell them up front that this is not going to be a standard 20-minute follow-up visit. We see them often for one to two hours at a time. And so we ask questions like, how are you? Are you sleeping? Are you eating? Do you remember or know what happened to you while you were in the hospital? And you would be shocked that many people have no memories and no information about what happened to them. And so often we start with retelling the story of their hospitalization. This is the last thing you remember coming in through the emergency department. Here's what happened next. And we'll take them day by day or week through week or complication through complication of their hospital stay until they have memories again. And then we talk about how they're recovering. What was their life like before the hospital? And what is it like now? Can they take care of themselves? 
do they feel like they could get back to their life, whether that was being a parent, a student, a professional. And then we have more formal surveys that we do, which are validated questionnaires to actually look for symptoms of emotional or psychological challenges. Like we screen for anxiety, depression, PTSD. We screen for uh, sleep and insomnia challenges. We screen for ADLs, which are activities of daily living. So can people take care of themselves, do the basic things they need independently? We screen for quality of life. And based on the results of those screens, we may make additional referrals to, for example, mental health experts. If someone looks like they have symptoms of PTSD, we would refer that person to a psychologist specializing in that. Well, then let's follow along that line. Tell us what other providers might be involved and how important this multidisciplinary approach to wellness after illness really is for these patients. I mean, the multidisciplinary approach is so important in the ICU, and that continues after recovery or during recovery. So when people initially started asking uh, me a couple years ago, what are you doing in post-ICU? And I would say that what I do is the least important thing. They don't need a doctor anymore. What they need are people who can help them achieve their goals, which is generally to get back to a life that's recognizable. And so often what they need is occupational therapy and physical therapy, people to help them gain stamina back. If it's just that they're weak and debilitated and have lost muscle mass from being in the hospital or to help them overcome a new challenge they have with a new neurologic or muscular or arthritic problem that has developed. They need often speech pathology and speech therapists to help them if their swallowing has become impaired from having a breathing tube in for so long. They certainly need mental health expertise if they're having symptoms of anxiety or depression. We have a partner in our sleep medicine practice who is a psychologist by training who helps with insomnia, nightmares. And then um, we have partners in pharmacology from our ICU pharmacologists and our ICU dietitians who can help in people who've lost a tremendous amount of weight and are interested in how to gain back weight in a, a safe and healthy way and how to supplement their diet. And then our pharmacologists are invaluable because patients sometimes enter the hospital taking no medicines and may leave prescribed 10 medications. And in between those two dates, there may have been many different teams taking care of the patient. So they may have been in an emergency department and then an intensive care unit, then a step-down unit, then a medical floor, then a rehab facility, and then home. So that's several steps where the patient is vulnerable, where medication reconciliation or ensuring the right medicines are being continued and the right are being stopped may have happened perfectly or may not have. And so in the post-ICU clinic, with the help of pharmacologists, we go through those medications in detail and we make sure they're not taking one extra medicine they don't need, but on the other hand, they're taking the right ones and the ones they do need. And you'd be surprised how often patients come in having no idea why they're prescribed these medications. And when you don't know the importance of them, then, of course, you have no interest in taking them, especially if they're expensive. And so the last thing they need often is social work or case management, someone who can help them navigate being someone who now has an illness when they're not used to it and may be financially burdened by that. So some of our patients have lost their jobs while they were in the hospital or lost their insurance. 
and now they can't afford the one medicine that might be life-saving. Or they used to take the subway everywhere, and now they need to take a taxi because they're too weak to walk the subway stairs. And they have four doctor's appointments this week, and they can't afford four taxi rides. So we can help with the help of social work, set them up with city or governmental services that can help them, not only with getting them emergency insurance, but also in getting them, for example, emergency transportation to help them get to their doctor's appointments. What an amazing, comprehensive approach that is, Dr. Leaf. So in this climate that we're in now, how are you utilizing video visits as a follow-up after discharge? Well, video visits have been really life-saving for us. As a practice in pulmonary, we had just started using video visits prior to the COVID pandemic. And of course, after it started, we really escalated our use of them. And so a few weeks ago, we started seeing our first post-ICU patients via video visit. And I'll tell you, there are so many benefits to it that I didn't even anticipate. So one is that we get to see the patient in their own home, their own environment, which is incredible. So if I need to ask a patient, can you walk up a flight of stairs? The patient will pick up her phone and walk up a flight of stairs with me. I can see them stand up independently from a couch, or they can show me why it's a struggle for them to get in and out of their bed. So just watching a patient navigate his or her own apartment or house is really valuable. The second thing that's remarkable is I do the video visits with uh, fellows or pulmonary critical care fellows or trainees in my office, which is right behind the medical ICU in the hospital. And so sometimes the patients will say, oh, I have this amazing nurse who cared for me, and I wish I could say thank you to that nurse. And I say, why? That nurse is actually working today. Would you like me to ask him or her to come back and say hi? And so I can actually have faculty, fellows, nurses, respiratory therapists who work in the ICU connect with these patients who want to say thank you or just say hi because they remembered seeing them every day for three weeks in the ICU. Just come and say hi and give a little wave and get to see the patients at home. And I think it it provides value not only to the patient to feel like they were able to express gratitude, but also to the staff in the ICU who so rarely get to see the patients once they've recovered. It provides a huge amount of relief and sort of validation of what they do to see their patients recovered, home, and back to their lives. It really is amazing. So how do you see COVID-19 affecting ICU survivors and your post-ICU recovery clinic? Well, it's so interesting because I started this practice formally a couple years ago, and I was seeing these patients informally through my pulmonary practice prior to that. and. As soon as COVID-19 started, there was a big uptick in interest in post-ICU care. And to me, the biggest change is not that the patients are going to be particularly different. So a patient who is in the hospital for three weeks on a ventilator is at high risk for having post-ICU syndrome. And I think patients with COVID have the same risk. Now, of course, we don't know that yet. Hopefully, we'll learn more about it. The difference is the sheer number of patients. So in a terrible flu season, we might have a handful of patients who were on a breathing machine for weeks and suffered the kind of complications we're seeing now. But in the last two months, you know, on just in the campus of our hospital, we've had hundreds. 
So one of the big differences is the sheer number of patients that are going to be at risk for post-intensive care syndrome. And so from our end, what we've done is really reinforced our partnerships with rehab medicine, with pharmacy, with dietitian, with mental health providers, so that we know we have enough resources to accommodate all the patients that may need their expertise. The thing I, I think might be a benefit to COVID for post-ICU care is the attention it's brought because this is not a new syndrome. It's something we're only learning about. And I think now that people see just in one city, thousands of patients who suffered a very significant and traumatic ICU stay, a huge percentage of those people might need follow-up intensive care treatment. And so now the public and the media are learning about post-intensive care syndrome and the value of our practice. And so I hope that it brings more attention to what we're doing. And so more people will seek help after intensive care. Even in our practice, we don't limit our patients to having been in one of our intensive care units. We see patients who've been in intensive care units all over the city come out, realize they have some anxiety or recurring nightmares, and then are referred to us so we can do a comprehensive screen and help them get set up with the providers they need to help them get back to their lives. So, Dr. Leaf, as we wrap up, tell listeners what you'd like them to know about what you see as the greatest value in a post-ICU recovery clinic at Weill Cornell Medicine, how it's different from standard follow-up appointments with a primary care doctor, how it helps with the emotional and cognitive needs of the patient as well. Kind of summarize and wrap it up for us what you'd like listeners to take away from this very important topic. You know, I think I've learned what's so important about our practice from our patients. One of the very first few patients I saw who when I started with the sort of open-ended questions that I do, how are you? Are you eating? Are you sleeping? Are you getting out of the house? And the patient broke down in tears and said, I've seen four doctors since I left and nobody has asked me that. And I'll tell you, I work with incredible doctors. One of the reasons I stay at Weill Cornell is because we have just the most spectacular specialists. But due to the time constraints, and the requirements and nature of what each specialist is trying to manage, they're often unable and don't have the time or expertise to think about the broader challenges, including emotional and cognitive. And so what we offer is that we are there to help the patient get back to who they were before or who they plan to be. And if that means the entire visit is spent dealing with PTSD, that's what we'll do. If it means the entire visit is dealing with shortness of breath and the inability to walk up a flight of stairs when they used to be a marathon runner, that's what we'll do. The visit is really tailored to the patient. We screen them in a 360 degree manner about what their challenges are after the ICU, emotional, financial, physical, cognitive. And then we focus on what they need to achieve their goals. We have no agenda. The agenda is set by the patient, and I think that is very unique. It certainly is. Thank you so much. It's so encouraging to hear about this very comprehensive, multidisciplinary approach that can help patients that have suffered a trauma and were in the ICU. Thank you again for joining us. 
For more information on how to manage the emotional challenges of this pandemic, please visit wildcornell.org news. You'll also learn how Wild Cornell Medicine is taking extra precautions to prioritize your patient experience in office and offering more resources via digital health on wildcornell.org digital-health-services. Thank you for joining us again today. This concludes today's episode of Back to Health. We'd like to thank our listeners and invite our audience to download, subscribe, rate, and review Back to Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. For more health tips, go to wildcornell.org and search podcasts. And parents, don't forget to check out our Kids HealthCast. I'm Melanie Cole. Rehabilitation medicine helps patients recover from a wide range of diseases and disorders, including cancer and cancer treatment's painful side effects. If you'd like to learn more about cancer care and innovations in oncology, be sure to listen to CancerCast, Wild Cornell Medicine's podcast series featuring leading oncologists and patient perspectives. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Wild Cornell Medicine as an institution.